0: Genesis 4, verses 1 through 7. And again, before we go to God's word, let's pray and let's ask Him to bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of His word this morning. Our Father, we thank you again that we get to sit under the living word of the living God, that you have breathed out the scriptures and that you breathe new life into us who you have granted the gift of faith and repentance to, that you breathe spiritual life into us by your word we thank you that you accomplish all your purposes through it we thank you that it is pure and that it is true we thank you that you reveal Christ to us in it we thank you that you reveal your plan of redemption we pray that you would build us up in the Lord Jesus that you would increase our faith that you would make us men and women who are strong in the faith who are keeping our eyes steadfastly fixed on Jesus and running the race that you have set us in. We pray, our God, that you would be merciful to us. We pray that you would work in our souls this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 4, beginning in verse 1, and this is the first uh, event in human history after the fall, after God has pronounced the curses on Adam and Eve, and after he has exiled them out of Eden. This is what man has become, and we're told in Genesis 4.1, now Adam But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. One of the interesting things and important things to remember about the book of Genesis is that Moses is writing this book and this portion of scripture specifically to the Israelites. God has just brought Israel out of the house of bondage, out of Egypt. He has brought them through the Red Sea. He has destroyed their enemies. He has brought them out from the idolatry of Egypt, where they had fallen into idolatrous worship with pagans, and he has brought them to the mountain. And he is giving Moses all these things to give to Israel on the mountain. And God's purpose in that, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, is that the Lord is intent on teaching Israel and teaching us about his plan for new creation. Adam and Eve failed. They disobeyed God. They were exiled out of the garden temple. They failed in the purposes of God. Mankind has fallen under the guilt and condemnation of sin, the corruption of sin, the miseries of this life, the curses that God placed on the woman in her Childbearing on the man in his work. There's places where man and woman would have brought about the dominion of all things and now man has miserably fallen. And God, in wanting to explain to his people in the Old Covenant and to us in the New Covenant how far gone man is, has recorded for us in the scriptures the story of Cain and Abel. It's a story maybe you think you know and yet it's a story that is full of theological instruction and riches. One of the things that The account of Cain and Abel does for us is what the rest of the Old Testament and the Gospels do for us and it sets out really two religions it sets out two religions you have two worshipers in the account of Cain and Abel two men brothers with the same parents and the same privilege and the same nurture and the same pedigree worshiping God attempting to worship God and yet worshiping him one by works and one by grace And one by faith. Thomas Chalmers was one of the great Scottish theologians of the 19th century. And there's a story that as he stood before the General Assembly in 1843, a church that was divided in its commitment to scripture, mixed with ministers, some of whom were faithful and some were unfaithful, Chalmers stood before that General Assembly and he he said, Brethren, today in this room, there is one Bible, there is one confession of faith, and there are two religions. What chalmers was saying is what god is saying in genesis 4 and that's the story of israel isn't it? it's the story of how how can israel learn not to trust in their works how can they learn not to become the pharisees that they would become in the days of jesus how could they learn to be men and women and boys and girls that realize that they are hopeless and helpless and lost except for the grace of jesus and it's interesting that in the very first account that God gives us in scripture, the very first interaction that God records for us after the fall of Adam and Eve with their first sons, Cain and Abel, we have a history of two religions. We have a history of two worshipers that our God would want us to consider this morning. We're going to look at three things. First, we're going to consider the two sons, and then secondly, we're going to consider the two sacrifices, and finally, we're going to consider the two seeds. We'll notice that Moses tells us in verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. One of the very interesting things about this chapter, because it's one of the saddest chapters in the Bible. Cain, the elder brother, kills Abel because he's jealous, because Abel's accepted, and Cain is not accepted. Abel's justified by grace through faith. Cain is not justified cain is self-righteous and proud and says i will bring to the lord an offering abel is a man that knows he's a sinner and in this story in the sad story in which cain kills his brother out of envy and jealousy because he is accepted by god and cain is not we have this interesting high note at the beginning we're told that adam knew eve his wife and she conceived and bore cain saying i've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, why is that interesting? It's interesting because after the fall, man should have no blessings. After the fall, there should be nothing good that happens. After man is exiled out of Eden, he is not deserving of any good thing. He doesn't deserve the air that he breathes. He doesn't deserve food, let alone children. This is really a picture of God's common grace, what theologians call common grace. It is God saying, I will allow men, believers and unbelievers, to still experience blessings in this life, not saving blessings, common benefits. Jesus will tell us, won't he, that we are to be like our Father in heaven who makes his sun shine on the just and the unjust and sends rain on the godly and the ungodly. It's common grace. Notice that Eve is acknowledging she has born a child with the help of the Lord. God has been gracious in a sense to allow Adam and Eve to populate. Now you may say, how is that? gracious and what's the big deal about that here's the big deal god could have wiped humanity off the face of the earth when adam and eve disobeyed but our god has a plan of redemption and that plan of redemption means that the earth must populate so that at the end of time jesus will have for himself a people that he has redeemed out of every tongue and tribe and nation and language that forever will be standing before his throne saying you are worthy for you were slain and you have redeemed us to god with your blood in order for that to happen god permits his image bearers to populate to have children to fill the earth again though they can't fulfill the dominion mandates by having children and by working they nevertheless experience these common grace blessings and we see that god tells us at the outset that adam and eve while well, we know later that they had other children that they had two sons now I think that it's fairly clear that Eve, when she names Cain, Cain, in Hebrew that means acquire. She says, I've acquired a man from the Lord that Eve has mistakenly thought that God is fulfilling the promise of Genesis 3.15 to send a male redeemer. She thinks maybe this is it. Maybe God's going to make good on that promise. Maybe this is the one who is going to undo what the serpent brought into this world, what Satan brought in, what Adam brought into this world, that he would come, that he would crush the head of the serpent. We are going to be told in first john that cain was of the evil one we're going to be told that she was completely mistaken and yet she is hoping and even with the birth of these sons and i think there's a principle here for us when we have children we ought to be hoping in god's redeeming purposes we ought to know that god never promises to save every one of our children that's going to be clear from this text that's going to be clear from jacob and esau that's going to be clear from isaac and ishmael that's going to be clear from the old testament god never promises to save the children of every believer. I think it's clear that Adam and Eve are believers. They're going to teach their sons how to sacrifice. They're going to teach them about God's redemptive purposes. Why do we hear so little of Adam if he was a believer? Thomas Manton, the Puritan theologian, says that Adam had to bear the reproach of his sin, though even there's evidence that he believed the gospel and was redeemed himself. He would not ever be set out as a hero. Nevertheless, he and his wife trusted God and they trusted God in the lives of their children, and they diligently taught their sons. I think that that's a huge principle for us, though. The story ends tragically. The principle stands that we are to raise and seek to raise godly offspring unto the Lord. Um, Malachi, the great prophet in the Old Testament, asked the question, why did God make the man and the woman in marriage one? And he says the answer, because he seeks godly offspring. God only gives you children as a believer because he wants you to raise them to know him. And Adam and Eve both received the common grace of God in having children, and they also applied themselves in raising these two sons. Eve names Cain Cain. We don't know what happens. There are theologians that think that Cain and Abel were twins. We don't know. They might have been parallel with Jacob and Esau. It fits. fits with the story of the two men. It fits with the principle of self-righteousness and faith with the two, it fits in that paradigm of grace and works. And yet we don't know. And when Eve comes to name her second son, she names him Abel, which literally means breath or vanity. It's as if Eve is realizing, and maybe there's a time separation between the two. Maybe she's miscarried. Maybe she's felt the turmoil of life. We don't know. She's realized that life is not all that it's cracked up to be and that there's hardship and toil. Maybe Cain is rebellious at a young age and he's quite a bit older than Abel. And so she has Abel and she calls him breath. She realizes that man's life is vanity, that it's breath. There's almost a sense of her losing heart and losing hope, which is ironic because God is going to place his sovereign grace on Abel and not on Cain. And as we're told about these two brothers, these two sons, notice Then Moses tells us, now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. They both entered in on lawful professions. Cain, probably because he was the older one, followed his father's footsteps. Adam was to be a gardener. He was to tend the ground and to keep it. Cain follows in his dad's footsteps. Abel also has a legitimate profession. He is a keeper of sheep. He is a herdsman. It's interesting to me, as I've reflected on this account, I think um, the account of Cain and Abel is so rich and the, the scriptures are so rooted in it, which is why Jesus appeals to Abel in Matthew 23 and 1 John, John appeals to Cain. There's so much embedded in it and, and I think it's striking, we'll see this later, that Abel is a type of Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd. Isn't it interesting that the first believing child of Adam and Eve, who is called righteous Abel, Who is said to by faith have offered up a more acceptable sacrifice to god and who is martyred for his faith in trusting god and doing what god has asked him to do he's a type of the lord jesus the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep he is going to be the first martyr jesus is the ultimate martyr he is the savior who redeems in his righteousness out of a desire to please his father and to bring many sons to glory we're told that cain worked the ground and abel we're told, was a keeper of sheep. Well, secondly, and you'll know well that the story is really centering on the two sacrifices. Notice that we're told in verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, there has been much ink spilled on exactly what's going on. There are a litany of people who think that the, the difference in the sacrifice is that That Abel has decided, I will give to God the best, and Cain is given the leftovers. I don't think that's what it's teaching. There are people that will say, well, God required in the law, he required grain offerings. And isn't Cain bringing a grain offering? I think we can clearly say that Cain and Abel were taught by their parents how to sacrifice the need for sacrifice. Remember, God had clothed Adam and Eve. He had killed a sacrifice. He had clothed them with the animal skins. This is the first explicit reference to sacrifice, but this much we can be sure of. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That holds true from day one of the fall. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So what's going on? We have this picture of these two brothers, and they're coming, and they may be worshiping side by side. They may be setting up altars side by side. They may be sacrificing on the same altar. And we're told that Abel has brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, but Cain, we're told, brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. I don't want to offend anybody here, but Cain brought a local, organic, vegan sacrifice. He did not bring blood. He left a light carbon footprint. He did not feel his need for a blood sacrifice. He did not feel his need to be reconciled to God. He came, and this is the big important point, Cain came in self-righteous pride, Just like the Pharisee when he comes into the temple and the Pharisee says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I'm not like this one. I fast, I pray, I give. Cain comes and he brings of the labor of his hand, the symbol of what he's done. I will give to God what I've done. Um, John Owen, who, by the way, has a magnificent section on this in his commentary on Hebrews 11, 4, makes the point that Cain is merely coming to God to worship him as the creator and the preserver, but not as the redeemer. I that's very instructive. Men by nature will acknowledge God as creator and preserver, but not as redeemer. And the difference between the sacrifices is clearly that Cain thinks he can present himself to the Lord and Abel knows that he needs a savior. Now, there are little clues in the text that tell us that this is what God's actually teaching us. Notice that the text doesn't say the Lord respected Abel's sacrifice but did not respect Cain's. He doesn't say the Lord accepted what Abel brought, but he didn't accept what Cain brought. He says the Lord accepted Abel and his sacrifice, but he did not accept Cain. And his sacrifice. Now, what's the point of that? Why is that so important? Why is it important that Moses has lodged into this text this little nuance that God accepted Abel and his sacrifice, not Cain and his sacrifice? John Calvin, I think rightly, points out God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. Moses made a special note in the succinct comment. He could have simply said God had respect for Abel's sacrifice, but did not accept Cain's but he presents the offering differently. He says that God has respect for Abel and his offerings and did not respect for Cain or his offerings. We see he begins with the person and then moves to his works, as if saying God does not spend time with appearances, but begins with the more important, the persons. Now, what Moses is saying is your works will never be accepted by God unless he by grace justifies you. That's what's being taught here. How do I know? Hebrews eleven four. 4. The writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, and through it bore witness that he was righteous. God justified Abel by grace. God decided, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will have mercy on Abel. I will give him a a new heart. I will give him a heart that loves me, a heart that will trust me, a heart that will believe the gospel, the promise of the Redeemer. He will come and note the difference. I want to point this out this morning. Who comes with a bloody offering? Somebody that knows that they're a sinner. That's who comes with a bloody lamb. And who comes without blood? Someone that thinks that they don't need a substitutionary, wrath-atoning sacrifice. Abel realizes He's a sinner. He's not righteous because of himself. He's not righteous because he decided to give to God the best. I think oftentimes of the widow with the two mites. It's not the amount or even the quality of what's being given, it's the person that God has worked in and has justified. Grace and seeing your need for the blood and righteousness of Jesus is the only thing that will animate giving. The well, only, only thing that will properly animate giving. The widow with the two mites, Jesus said, put in more than all with their money, who put in abundance, because she put in out of everything that she had. She wasn't trusting in that. She wasn't trying to merit God's favor. Abel, just like the tax collector in the temple, was probably beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I love... Um, The way that Martin Lloyd-Jones captures this, he says there is one way and only one way into the holiest of all. It is by the blood of Jesus. If you acknowledge that, God acknowledges you. If you acknowledge that, God acknowledges you. The sacrifices were different sacrifices because God had worked differently in each one. Now, note that while the two sons are set in contrast here in their sacrifices... Note also that it says in verse 5, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. God at some point tells Cain he is not approved. He is not accepted. The Proverbs will say that the sacrifice of the wicked and the prayers of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. It doesn't matter how much people pray. It doesn't matter if they do it five times a day. It doesn't matter how much money they give. Pharisees will talk about worship, giving, fasting religious duties they will talk about everything but they will not talk about their need for a redeemer and god didn't accept cain because cain acted self-righteously in unbelief now what does that say to us that says that every one of us are called to ask when i come to worship god what is what's happening in my heart do i recognize that i cannot enter into his presence except for the sacrifice of jesus do i acknowledge is the cry of my heart, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because I'm going to say this this morning. The constant cry of the heart of a believer is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Abel probably didn't live a long life. And yet all the days that he lived, his prayer would have been, as he offered that firstborn spotless lamb that pointed to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, his prayer would have been, Lord, I need the blood shed of a Redeemer. I need you to forgive my sins. I need you to have mercy on me. You know, if you ever get past the cross, you are automatically in the realm of self-righteousness and thinking that somehow you can bring to God on your own, in your own strength, because you've been made better, you can somehow now bring to God an offering. And I love this. The, the reformers will often say, speaking about God accepting our persons and then our works, well, for justification, for our standing before God, it is by faith in Jesus alone. It's his righteousness imputed to us, our sin put on him. Afterwards, though, and Calvin says that, afterwards, to a lesser degree, God also accepts the works of his people because they're covered with the blood of Jesus. He justifies the works of his people so that they are legitimate good works. They don't trust in them. Um, Interestingly, liberal theologians will often appeal to the parable of the sheep and the goats, where Jesus says, uh, on judgment day, he separates the sheep from the goats and he says to the sheep, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He says to the goats, Depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And, and the difference in the parable, um, Jesus says to the sheep, Because I was, I was hungry and you fed me, I was naked and you clothed me, I was sick and in prison and you visited me. Um, and he says to the goats, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And then, he, and then the most remarkable thing happens. The sheep say, when did we do this? They're not trusting in their works. They're not trying to atone for their sins. They're not trying to bring to God something to appease him. They're living out what God has made them by grace. They are acting in accord with God's word because they love the Lord and because they trust in Jesus. And, and by contrast, the goats who go to eternal damnation, they say to Jesus, when did we see you? And we didn't do this. Their whole life was trusting in their works. They were trusting in what they did. Now, I want us to think this morning that none of this will be determined for us externally. I can't look at you, and you can't look at me, and and we can't say, I know that that person is not harboring self-righteousness in their heart, in their desire to worship the Lord. That's a question that only you can answer before the Lord. Um, I think that, and I've said this before in the past, while we would probably say as believers that we could, were susceptible to any sin and we could fall into any sin, most of us think we've been cured of our self-righteousness. Most of us think, and, and then it surfaces when we judge others. It surfaces when we we get angry toward others or when we get envious of others and we realize we're really seeking acceptance in other things. We're not finding our acceptance in Christ. We're not not able to say, and this is the big thing, this is what Abel could say. Abel could say, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Cain could not say that. Cain was not clinging to the cross. He was not looking for a sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews will say, by faith, Abel offered to God a better, a more acceptable sacrifice. What made it more acceptable? God had ordained that sinners needed a perfect spotless lamb and the blood that pointed to the blood of Jesus to atone for their sins, it was better because it was what God had appointed. And it's only appropriated by faith. The only way that men and women will worship God in spirit and in truth is if they have faith in Jesus. When we come to worship and we should delight in coming to worship, every Lord's Day, we should want to be in worship. We should long. That's what a believing heart does. It longs to be in worship and it longs to say, I need you every hour, Lord Jesus. I need you. Cleanse me with your blood. I am so full of sin. Even though you have cleansed me originally, I need further cleansing. I want to know you more. I want to grow my knowledge of you. That's what a believing heart says. That's what the sacrifice of a believing heart looks like. And then finally, we see the two seeds. We have talked about the two sons and the two sacrifices. And yet, as most of you all know, this is really the first exposition of Genesis 3.15. How is God going to put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman? Because when God says that, at that point, everyone is on the serpent side. Adam and Eve, are they have turned against God. The Bible says that by nature we hate God, all of us by nature, hate God, we are totally depraved, our minds are darkened, our heart is black, we don't love the things of the Lord, we hate hearing about the Lord, we hate the people of God, we may not admit that, but we do by nature, that's what the Bible testifies of all men, how is God going to work out his plan in Genesis 3.15, and then we come to the story of Cain and Abel, and this is the first picture of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. I want us to just focus on one aspect today, and then we'll come back and look next week at the hostility and the enmity and the murder. But notice that in verse 5, the Lord doesn't accept Cain. He reveals to Cain that he's not accepted. Cain, notice his response in verse 5, Cain was very angry. Natural man, when he's told that he's not accepted if he's not in Christ, gets angry. It angers him. that enmity with God. He hates hearing that Jesus is the only way. He hates hearing that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. He hates hearing that unless you go to God and say, I am a sinner, you will never know his mercy and his grace. Cain, the seed of the serpent, was very angry, and his countenance fell. Isn't that remarkable? Instead, Cain should have said, Lord, what must I do to be saved? That would have been a response of grace. If he had been a recipient of grace, Cain would have said, Lord, I wasn't accepted. What must I do to be saved? What must happen for me to be accepted? And the marvelous thing about this section is that God doesn't immediately cast Cain off. Isn't that, isn't that remarkable? Cain is coming in self-righteous pride. God tells him he's not accepted because he's not sacrificing in faith. He's not looking to the Redeemer. God then tells him that His offering was not accepted, I think, so that he would elicit from Cain a response of, what must I do? And instead, Cain becomes angry, and his countenance falls, his pride is wounded, he's not humbled, he's not repentant, the self-righteous person will always say, how dare you tell me I'm not good enough? Isn't that remarkable that the living God would come to Cain and Cain's response would be, how dare you, God, tell me I'm not good enough? You'll see this later. The Lord deals in great common mercy toward Cain after he kills Abel. And and Cain's response is, Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. It's too much. Killed my brother, now you're going to exile me? should be in hell, Cain. should go to hell forever. Being exiled to a city and protected from vagabonds is a kindness from the Lord. Cain is showing what's in his self-righteous and proud heart. And notice what the Lord then does in verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. What's happening? Why is the Lord saying what he's saying to Cain? Well, I think that we have in this, and, and this is an amazing portion of scripture, because on the one hand, we have God's sovereign grace. What made the difference between Cain and Abel was God's sovereign grace. That was it. wasn't anything that Abel did. Wasn't, he didn't pray a sinner's prayer to get that grace. God changed his heart, gave him faith, drew him to himself. That's what made the difference. The two seeds were separated by sovereign grace. God pulled Abel into the kingdom of Jesus by grace, and he didn't bring Cain in. But now, and this is remarkable, as the outworking of God's plan of redemption in history with the two seeds and the hostility happens, notice what Moses does. Now he hones in on the responsibility of man. Isn't that interesting? Now God comes with the free offer of the gospel again to Cain. He comes with the gospel. He says, Cain, why are you downcast? If you would do well, and I think there he means if you would believe what I've said, if you, would, if you would act in faith in accord with what I've said, if you would offer a blood sacrifice and acknowledge that you're a sinner and look in faith to the coming Redeemer that I will send to deliver and redeem you, if you will acknowledge what your brother has acknowledged, you'll be accepted. You'll be justified. And yet, notice the enmity and the hostility. Not only does the exceeding great kindness of God toward Cain prove to no avail with regard to his responsibility, but it elicits more of the hostility. It moves to the murder of his brother. It, it stirs up the bitterness in his heart. I think that what we take away from that, and as sobering as a thought this is in a room this size or any size, sitting under God's word, there are usually those who are the seed of the woman in Christ, And those who are still in satan's kingdom it's a it's a sobering thought it's what it's what uh, chalmers said before the church of scotland there's one bible in this room there's one confession of faith there are two religions so every one of us has to ask have i have i heard the gospel have i heard god calling me back to himself yes i've done exceedingly wicked things i have i have been exceedingly rebellious i've rejected god i spent my whole youth rejecting god maybe you say I've done so many things, how could I ever be forgiven? And God says, I will forgive all your iniquities and transgressions because I've put them on my son. If you will trust in him, you will have all of your sins washed away. God continues to call sinners. And in the general call of God, what God is doing is he is dividing and he is distinguishing. Let this be noted this morning. There is no neutrality. There's no neutrality in the world. Either you are for Jesus or you are against him. Jesus said, He who does not gather with me scatters. So there's there's no neutrality. There's no good people who are accepted by God who don't come to him through Jesus. And people who have been redeemed and are being redeemed love to hear that because they love the fact that God has appointed such a gracious Savior in Jesus Christ. I love to hear that. I need to hear that every day day of my life. And those who have not come to him hated. It It is the most hostile and enmity-stirring thing that their ears can hear. It's the most beautiful thing to the redeemed. It is the most enmity-provoking thing in the unregenerate. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, we have to say, where am I in this story? All of this is painted for us. It's painted that we would examine ourselves and we would say, look, we're all here. We're all wanting to worship God. We're all wanting to give him some kind of... Adoration, some kind of sacrifice, and the question is, is the sacrifice that we're wanting to bring to God the sacrifice that he has appointed in Jesus in us holding out empty hands and saying, Lord, give what you have already done, or are we saying, well, I'm going through the motions, and I'm going to church, and I'm giving to God, I'm giving up an hour on Sunday, I'm, uh, I'm giving God that, I'm doing my best. My best friend Stephen said, he was witnessing to a guy this last week, and um whose life is just in shambles and who is, is clearly not trusting the Lord and rejecting the gospel and arguing with Stephen about it. And Stephen said, look, what what do you think, what do you think God, What do you think he's going to accept you? And he said, this guy said, well, I'm, I'm trying my best. <laughs> and Stephen's like, no, you're not. You're not. None of you are trying your best. You can't try your best and your best wouldn't be good enough. It would not be good enough. A blood sacrifice is what God has appointed. The shed blood of Jesus is everything. I'm going to leave you with this thought because I love this statement so much that Lloyd-Jones said again. lloyd Jen says that there is one way and one only into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus. He who, is, he who acknowledges this is acknowledged by God. He who acknowledges this is acknowledged by God? That's a great question. Every every day of your life you should be asking, am I acknowledging my need for the Savior? Am I acknowledging my need to know him and to trust him and to walk according with his word because I believe in him? Have Have I gone to him and said, Lord, I'm a sinner? You know, the beautiful thing about the gospel is those who go to the Lord and say, Lord, I am a great sinner are those that hear the Lord say to them, and I love you more than you could ever know and I accept you in my son, and I forgive you. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear and let him seek to apply the words that the Spirit has spoken. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we <coughs> know and acknowledge that we are great sinners, and we thank you that you have provided a greater sacrifice, a better sacrifice, a sacrifice that makes us accepted lord jesus we thank you that you are that sacrifice that you are the great shepherd of the sheep and that you gave your life for your own that you laid it down and you took it again and that you have said come to me and the one who comes to me will never be cast out we thank you that you have made way that you have dealt with the sin that was crouching at the door of your temple that we might come in and worship pray these things this morning in jesus name amen